Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with the Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, Matt, we do it solo, no guest, because at the end of the day, when it comes to Star Wars, I want you in the chair next to me, and I want to have the conversation with you about what this movie is all about. My name is Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania. And my name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University of Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. I'm also a Star Trek guy, so I'm way out of my element here. But we're, 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 I'm going to ride with you, Adam, as far as we can. Don't tell me that you don't have a file of at least 45 minutes of talking points about the Star Wars universe. I, I do not have a file of 45 minutes of talking points. Okay. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. Typically, we invite a guest, but today we go old school. The light side of the force, the dark side of the force, I'll let you guess which is which. Matt and I talk to each other about the most recent installment in the Star Wars canon, The Last Jedi. In our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we discuss what The Last Jedi has to do with ministry, theology, scripture, and the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Last Jedi for the lectionary week ahead, which will be January 28th, the fourth Sunday after Epiphany. And finally, we'll offer up some postludes, some preacher thoughts from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. Let's get to it. The Last Jedi, if you've been living under a rock, is a Star Wars movie. It's continuing the third trilogy of the series. The expansion of the Star Wars universe continues apace under the watch of Disney. In The Last Jedi, they hand the reins of the franchise to Ryan Johnson, who sort of made his mark initially with that little-watched high school mobster thriller Brick starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Did you see that, Matt? I did. That's a great movie. But I also would say he also made his mark directing for Breaking Bad. Oh, like right. He, he directed Ozymandias, which is like widely considered to be the high water mark of that series. And so I think that's kind of his signature piece, too. That, and goes, Looper. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed Looper. I thought yeah. Looper was great. Yep. So anyway, Johnson writes and directs the newest Star Wars installment, continuing J.J. Abrams' work on the first, which was The Force Awakens. In the second installment, we have about 35 to 50 storylines, the most important of which is Rey, who has brought out, who has sought out the guidance of Luke Skywalker to become a true Jedi. Meanwhile, Rey's counterbalance on the Force, the villainous Kylo Ren, is getting pretty emo, trying to figure out how he fits in the evil schemes of the Empire and why murdering his father and trying to murder his mother doesn't actually feel all that great. Rey and Ren are actually the beating heart of the movie. Their relationship drives the plot to a pretty stunning climax. In the meantime, Finn, the former stormtrooper, goes on some adventures and learns how to care. Poe Dameron, the X-Wing fighter pilot, learns what it means to be a leader. And Luke and Leia get one final act. Matt, this movie is big. I enjoyed it. I It was a fun theater watch. And if you haven't seen it in the theater, I'd encourage you to go. Uh, and I think... Ryan Johnson did a good job. I also don't really know how to assess it. And so I choose to focus on the shared screen time of Ray and Ren. And 
forget the stupid trip that Finn, ta- Finn and Rose take to the rich planet. In the end, I'll likely watch it a dozen more times like all of the rest of the movies. But at the beginning, what's your take? Did you like it? And more importantly, what intrigued you about its theological themes? So I really enjoyed this movie like you did. I enjoyed, I thought it was a really fun theater watch. Uh, I also think it has one too many character arcs in it. I mean, it's got a lot of stuff going on. And between trying to track Ray's arc, Luke's arc, uh, Kylo Ren's arc, um, and then Finn and Poe both alongside having Leia still hanging out there and this new um, kind of rebel uh, leader and Admiral Holdo, a Lord Dern's character, plus we add um, Rose into the mix. There's, there's a lot of characters who are learning something or changing in some way in this movie. And I think there's probably one too many. Um, and I, it's hard to figure out what I would advise, you know, it's kind of beside the point, but for me, I felt like, I felt like Finn and Poe needed to be one character for the purposes of this movie. I felt like that maybe Poe needed to be allowed to be a secondary character and that this kind of broader theme about growing into leadership or growing into responsibility needed to be focused on one person just because I felt oversaturated. That being said, I, I really like this movie and, and it, um, and I thinking theologically about it is, is where I get more excited about it than thinking about the kind of beats of the storytelling, to be perfectly honest, because I thought there were some storytelling beats that didn't entirely jive, but I love the, the thematic and the theological work that I think it's doing. Uh, and, and within that, I think within the theology of Star Wars, which is to say a kind of theology of myth around the force, around the light side and the dark side, this movie feels almost anti-theological. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it does. I mean, this movie is not interested in your heroes in a really, <laughs> in a really compelling and captivating kind of way. It is not interested in the conventional meaning-making of the established Star Wars universe. So, like, my counterpoint, and then I'll promise I'll let you talk. Like, my counterpoint is um, from Force Awakens when uh, Han Solo shows up and he gives that speech about, like, it's all, the, the it's all true speech, right? He's talking to, to Rey and he's talking to Finn and they've heard kind of the legends of the Jedi and the light side and the dark. And, and they meet Solo and he says, yeah, it's... it's it's all true. Everything you've heard. Uh, Force, Force Awakens, especially in that moment, is like in love with the classic mythology of Star Wars. Last Jedi does not give anything for that mythology. This movie brings a sword, man. Like Rey is revealed to be, spoiler alert, from nowhere. Her parenting does not matter. Snoke, the evil genius from the pre- from. Force Awakens is dispatched without any kind of ado whatsoever. Luke has become an old grumpy fuss bucket. Um, Poe and Finn both attempt to become heroes and they get squashed in the process. This movie is not about heroism. It's about organization and movements. And that is what's kind of interesting to me. And that's kind of where I'm hanging my hat. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, no, it does resonate with me. I f- and I found it really refreshing. In fact, I, I thought it brought it brought a, a nice new taste to this series that it, it perhaps needed. 
I know that in certain segments and certain corners of the internet right now, there are a lot of people who felt betrayed by the portrayals of Luke and the portrayals of Poe and on all of these different heroes because they didn't live up to their mythologies, right? They And Johnson's, I think, attempt to add some necessary humanity to this mm-hmm. um, was was valuable, ultimately, because I ended up ultimately liking these characters a little more. I agree with you also that there there are too many of them. And by the end, the fact that they're all still alive, minus Laura Dern's character and and, and Snoke is um, is probably a problem. Yeah. Um, one of them probably needed to die in order to make a point about sacrifice. Um, and the fact that Finn was willing to sacrifice and is saved by Rose it was a nice moment, actually. Her, what was her line like? We don't win the war by killing people; we win the war by saving people. Something like that, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and I have to say, in the moment, it got me. I was like, "Damn, that was pretty good," um, and I agreed with the sentiment. And yet, there was a part of me that also wanted to say, like, if you're going to make these larger points about how organizations do survive, um, especially those who are fighting. Uh, for things like justice or um, fairness or a, a balance, um, which is a central theme to the Star Wars canon. Uh, a lot of people die for this. And not just randoms that you don't know their names, but important people. And uh, and so I, I agree with you that there's there's something really lovely about the demythologizing of this, right? And And maybe that is like a helpful theological way to enter this is, is that there's, there's a level or, or layers of sediment that these characters have all received. And because it's so present within the pop culture landscape and there, and these characters are so beloved, it's not just the storytellers who have laid that sediment. It's each of us have told stories with them. I mean, literally had star wars figures and stories with these with these characters and so i think one of the hardest things about making movies in the 21st century is that everyone who's watching the movie also thinks that there's they're a filmmaker we all think that we should be in on the storytelling and the fact that ryan johnson was like nope i'm telling my story and i'm taking these characters and um and I'm going to tell it my way was a helpful reminder that sometimes the story is not yours. Uh, and that's a, that's helpful for me as a, as a Christian too, because I need the, I need this, I need Jesus to be both super close and familiar and also unfamiliar and unpredictable. I, I need both of those at the same time in order for, my relationship with Christ to stay alive. Yeah, it feels like in this newest trilogy, we have two really different models of that kind of director-fan material relationship. I mean, and the criticism around Force Awakens, which seems to have lessened over time, but I still hold by it, is that that Abrams had basically remade Episode Four, and then and and so doing, you know, with slight beats different one way or the other but in so doing he hadn't really said anything new about the star wars universe as a whole uh 
And now we have the exact opposite approach, which is Ryan Johnson daring to say something new about the Star Wars universe, and in so doing, really causing a kind of rupture with uh, a, a number of the a number of the the kind of canonical fans. And I wonder if I, I wonder if they were both kind of cursed to those fates, regardless, or whether hmm. there actually is a way. Is there hypothetically a Star Wars movie to be made that? would both be faithful enough to the established canon, but also dramatically honest enough to be able to say something new. Uh, yeah, some, some, some like alien synthesis at some point, right? Yeah, given, I mean, given the level of sediment as you well articulated, I think that's a challenge, and I'm not convinced that there is a way to do it. Well, and I think Johnson does it a little bit in the movie. I, I, for instance, he he in some ways recaptures the force as an idea. Um, so if you remember in the very, the earliest star Wars four, five, six, the force is vaguely religious. How it operates is never really explained. The teachers, uh, Yoda and Kenobi just refer to it and then just say, use it <laughs> as if, as if that's like appropriate instruction. And I think Lucas recognized that this was kind of shallow. And his way of then explaining is that he got real scientific about it, right? He's like, the force is midichlorians or something stupid like that. And and everyone's like, well, this is dumb. And and they said, like, well, we we actually preferred the shallow thing to your like overly scientific explanation of what this thing is. And then Johnson comes back and in the words of Luke, and then ultimately Yoda who shows up in his, in his ghost form talks about the force. And I think slightly deeper terms than the original trilogy, but not in scientific terms, right? It kept the religious um, flavor of them without trying to find some sort of essence that can be measured and understood. And and Luke ends up saying something like, the force, all right, you feel that tension between all things? Like, that's it. And that, that no one has it. Like, no one is, just people understand it and can, like, you can't really control it. You just use it. I mean, so there's, there's there are moments in this movie where I think Johnson does do some of that synthetic work to help um, gather the like over explaining and and the under explaining and trying to find something that that has a little bit more depth and that to me also has some theological significance. I, I wonder too if like um, if this pendulum back and forth from looking at, say, the miracle stories of Jesus in the 18th century, like in the dead center of modernity, and watching a whole bunch of people say, like, oh, well, there are scientific explanations for all of these miracles. Right. Um, or there are literary explanations. Or, like, let us explain away the very fact these that these miracles are present in the text. And... As that pendulum swung one way, it ultimately swung back another way. And uh, and in the 21st century, in the 20th century, people were a little less 
um, comfortable with them just being scientifically explained away and allowed for a little bit more humility in their understanding of what these miracles might be. And, and to me, that, that idea of, of how we explain things, how do we teach this thing that doesn't ultimately have an explanation or at least a serviceable one that's going to satisfy all of our questions to a group of people who desperately want answers. And I think that's where Ray is in the movie is she really wants answers. And Luke has realized that giving people answers actually does more to shine his own ego than help students. Well, and he's also worried about the, the, the kind of violent potential and the kind of institutional potential of, of the force. I mean, he's got, he's got the echoes of what happens to the Jedi as an institution in episode three. Um, he's got the echoes of what happens with his own training and how he, um, his role in kind of creating Kylo Ren. I mean, it's like every time that, an institution claims to be the arbiter of this thing or the possessor of it, then like really bad stuff happens. And so I, I was pretty sympathetic with his gun shyness, to be honest, because it felt like, yeah, this, this, the force is, um, is bigger than us. And so our, our attempts to kind of wield it don't always end well. And that also feels appropriately challenging uh, in a kind of modern theological landscape in, the, you know, the ways in which the church both is called to be a kind of witness to the mystery of the incarnation, but also in so many ways, the kind of, the kind of means by which people encounter it. And that power can be really destructive. Yeah, I found it mature. I mean, in a, in a strange way, like his his gun shyness, as you said it. Luke, to me, in this movie, felt a lot like a, some of the old ministers that I know. You know, whose advice to young ministers would be like, "Go do anything but." Right. And as a young minister, there was a part of me that was like, "That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard." Right. Like you, you get to say that after fifty years of work. Right. right. And you've got a nice pension that you could say that on top of. Yeah, and there's there's so many reasons why this silly answer from that you think is wizened is um, is actually condescending and stupid to me. Um, and as I've grown older, there is a part of me that where that that idea resonates a little bit more. It has a little bit more truth in my own heart. Um, and so I want to make room for. For someone like Luke, seeing like the destructive potential of this and saying like, truly the responsibility that comes with this office is, um, is more than you can totally realize at this point, and have Ray hear that. That said, Luke, like a lot of ministers I know and myself included, is prone to seeing everyone else's story as his own. Right, and his. And in his story, he's always been afraid of the dark side. He's he's deathly afraid of it. And when he goes into the cave, when he's in Empire, when he's training right. with Yoda, he sees his father and is uh, and is terrified. Right. 
And then I think in what was just a, an intriguing moment in this movie, Rafe just dives into this pit. Right. The dark side pit. Which she then sees these mirror images of herself. And at no point do you get the sense that she's afraid of it. Well, I think that... I think what this movie is pushing is this kind of question about what it means for there to be balance in the force. The original trilogy has always kind of lived in that tension of what it what what they say is that they want balance in the force. But the what resolves at the end of Return of the Jedi is that the dark side has been heavily vanquished or at least its its human ambassadors have been vanquished and the light side has has been victorious. And I have never entirely known whether that was meant to be balance or not. So what this movie seems to be doing to me is suggesting a kind of alternate way of evaluating right and wrong, good and evil. I mean, I, th- I, th- I think it's got its sights set pretty big. Mm-hmm. Where um, because, because Ray obviously tends toward the light side, but feels that and is in touch with that darkness underneath. And likewise, inversely is true for, for Kylo Ren, who, you know, pl- plays in the dark side, but feels that call and that tension elsewhere. They are able to exist in a kind of balance that I think is different than the way in which... Um, you know, Luke and Vader, for example, existed in Return of the Jedi. At the same time, then we get a kind of substitute evaluation, which is this movie is not about whether the light side wins or the dark side wins. It's about how you're able to to help real people. Yeah. And to me, this is where the this is where the Canto Bite stuff that you despise actually comes in helpful. This is the like the 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 obnoxious um, casino rich planet that that Finn ends up at and, and Rosie on this this errand, which is a in some ways I think a terrible sequence. It looks like something out of Phantom Menace. I mean it looks like bad CGI and it's not particularly I think it doesn't sit well visually with the rest of the movie. But but the idea that there could be um a place of obvious good and evil in the universe where there's obviously this like overclass of people who who are who do not care and who are um you know at at best just kind of ignorant of the oppression that they cause to those underneath them and that that has nothing to do specifically with the light side or dark side of the force it's just that they're jerks like right. that is really interesting to me that is now a totally different way of kind of scoring right or wrong in the Star Wars universe and it's not about these kind of quote unquote um, institutional moral imperatives of light side and dark side of the, of the force. It's about, it's about people. And that, that idea I quite enjoyed, even though the sequence is kind of ugly. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and oh, we haven't talked about the Benicio del Toro character. Okay. Yeah. So there's some problems. <laughs> so who, who, who comes into this movie as someone who is an opportunist in a way that, um, that, just tries to preserve the individual or the the human being, you know, recognizing that those who are fighting for the light side and those who are fighting for the dark side 
are using the same weapons to do this. And, right. those, are, and those weapons are being built on the backs of people. Right. And so that even the light side, even those people who are fighting for justice don't have their hands clean. So right. can any of us have our hands clean? Right. And, and this is precisely what drives Luke to an island, right? Is that yeah. he is obsessed with the fact that he, he couldn't measure up to the type of moral purity uh, that he thought was necessary to be a Jedi or an, an, someone of um, a teacher or, or someone who's going to lead the um, lead a new civilization of goodness and mercy and compassion. And, um, and that by taking himself out, he betrays the fact that like light, dark, these actually don't play that well in, the daily lives of people because we live such sort of integrated experiences. I, I think about this in my own life as someone who, who on the one hand is desperately seeking um, justice for um, the oppressed and the marginalized in our country while also feeling this deep pull for marble countertops. Yeah. At the same time. And, and and if my deep pull for um, in my heart for marble countertops is going to preclude me from trying on behalf of other people, then I maybe have misunderstood what it means to be a human in the first place. Hmm. So let's move on to the lectionary. But before we do, I want to tell everyone how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century. And I want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. Uh, Catherine Reckless recently wrote a piece about The Last Jedi for the century. So if you totally hate our ideas and you think that um, nothing that we've said has been interesting, I urge you to go read what she has to say. She's so erudite and interesting. I always enjoy reading her articles and um, and her commentary on whatever she's watching or reading is, is so astute. Also, Matt, uh, I wrote something recently for the century on why we're not having conversations about marijuana in the church. I think it's worth reading. I had a lot of fun writing it. Um, I talked to a lot of different pastors and, uh, and higher ups in denominations about this particular question. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can find that at the Christian century too, or come to our show page and, uh, we'll set up a link. Also, if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to the Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. Okay, moving on. Matt, the lectionary week ahead. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, and our lectionary passages for January 28th, the fourth Sunday in Epiphany. Our Deuteronomy passage about God raising up a prophet. There's the lovely psalm with that killer ending. Uh, there's Paul's instruction to the church in Corinth about eating food sacrificed to idol. And continuing the lectionary's time in Mark, we have an early exercise, exorcism exercise? Exorcism. Yeah. Jesus, Jesus exercises in Capernaum. Is that yeah, what yeah, yeah. That's, that's, yeah, Jesus hits a CrossFit in Capernaum. <laughs> uh, Jesus exercises a demon in Capernaum. So, Matt, which of these is standing out to you as you think about The Last Jedi? Well, I think there's a lot of places to start, and I want to pick the, the, the less obvious one, which is I want to talk about this uh, Corinthians passage and the, um, the food for idols. Because I think it kind of dovetails a little bit with the conversation we were just having about the, the substituting of light and dark um, 
for some other kind of way of measuring moral health. I mean, so what Paul figures out is that people who are sacrificing the food eaten to idol or eating the food sacrificed to idols or not are really just playing in a kind of um, that they're playing the hand that has been dealt to them by by ritual and by Jewish law and by a certain kind of tribal instincts that are showing up in this Corinthian congregation. And what he wants to do is substitute that understanding of what is good and bad or what is permissible and not permissible for an understanding that's based on, once again, it's based on kind of real people. And it's based on the, the folks who um, might be weaker or um, who might be offended by if I eat food that uh, um, they find to be um, sacrilegious to their practice, then um, Paul says, then I, I will never eat meat if it means that in doing and eating meat, I am offending the, the unity of the church through um, mm. and through this person who, um, who feels offended by that. And I, I think there's something nicely grounded and human about that evaluation, that it's not, like, again, it's kind of, it's not the the big hierarchy of we do this because it is right in the abstract or we do this because it is wrong in the abstract, which I think is part of what the light and dark of the force inherits, but rather we choose what is right and wrong based on the degree to which it, um, it nurtures community and the degree to which it helps the less fortunate and the weak. Um, particularly, I think you could tie this Corinthians passage to what he does at the end of Romans, where he talks about, um, in particular, the, the obligation of, of those who eat everything and those who abstain to, um, to supporting and upholding the, the quote-unquote, the, the weaker of their brothers and sisters. So that's my like oddball take on 1 Corinthians and the light and dark of the force. I think there are more obvious ways to get into this lectionary week, but I, I, <laughs> no, I, wanted, but I, like that. I, I wanted I to pull on that while it was fresh. So. No, I think it's 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 right because this is Paul at his most pastoral in a lot of ways, sure. right? I mean, yeah. he's he's trying to seek relationship, and and at the heart of this movie, there is there's this relationship, and I think the movie does a really interesting job showing how Ren and Ray are getting to know each other and understand each other and and yet still it's like very far apart and thinking both about the the relationship and what that means um and what type of charge that is on their life like what does that call them into is very real for both of them because on the one hand they both kind of want to manipulate the other and move the other into whatever it is, whatever camp that they are in. So Ray keeps telling Ren, you know, I see in you this, um, I see in you, I see your future and I see that you have good in you still. And, uh, Ren keeps telling Ray, like, kill your past. Your past is holding you down. You, you keep thinking, 
that this past is going to tell you who you are, but really it's just going to destroy you. So leave it behind. And both of those are, are great advice and terrible advice for each character. Um, and both of them are honest advice and manipulative advice given by the other. Right. In order to like, and, and then finally in this moment of unity, they kill a bunch of people and it's incredible. It's maybe the funnest, <laughs> maybe the funnest fight scene of the whole movie, right? Is like they finally team up and you see like the, the deep, the incredible potential that they both possess when they are teamed together. And I think about Paul and, and his pastoral heart and seeing at all of the machinations that happened in the church in Corinth that in so many ways still feels so relevant to the churches of which we serve and, and the churches um, that are littered throughout this country. Um, and part of his pastoral heart is to see what they can accomplish together if they can get over some of these machinations that they have and these as you said like their deep needs to be right in the abstract yeah and powerful and powerful right i mean part of part of what haunts kylo is that like he can't he can't stay in that relationship for long because he he's still using it as a tool for his own his own power hungriness and I think one of the things you see Paul here doing is trying to efface that. Like, this is, you know, I, I build up the body by um, de-elevating myself. Um, yeah. Or, or, or by, you know, by... Um, this is not entirely about my own self-determination. It's about um, how, do I, how, do, how do I empty myself and not eat the thing that I want to eat because, so that, for the health of someone else. And that is not that is not a move that Kylo is particularly prepared to make. Um, so. Right. I don't think either one of them are prepared to make it because I think at the heart of it, and this is I what interests me about Luke's final arc, at the heart of Paul's admonition to the church in Corinth is some measure of self-control. Yeah. And both Ray and Ren are impetuous, like powerful. Um, and yet they run after it. They, um, there isn't a lot of self-control in either one of their lives. And that was true for Luke Skywalker as well. Um, you know, he breaks off his, his training with Yoda cause he has to go in Empire Strike Back. He has to go. Um, and by the end of it, I think Luke has finally realized, like, through this ascetic life, uh, he's understood the limits of that asceticism, but has finally begun to realize, like, oh, maybe, maybe part of this life of wisdom is self-control. He doesn't need to burn down the temple. He, he, can, he can tarry. He can wait just a little bit because everything doesn't actually revolve around him. Yeah. And that's important. That's an important lesson that I think Paul is trying to teach us. I think you could also easily make a, I mean, I think this Deuteronomy text, right? The, the, I will raise up a prophet from among you. 
um, plays really well with the kind of classic Star Wars mythology of how the Force chooses people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was thinking about this too. It, it, it gels with the Mark passage too. Yeah, and like especially that that kind of coda ending here where we see the boy back on Candlebite kind of force grabbing his broom, right? That there's this sense of, uh, you know, of, of prophets as folks who are, I think if you made the basic move of prophets as folks who are force sensitive, um, yeah. then, you could, then you could mine a lot in that passage. Yes. Um, uh, and I think it, I, I, you could probably go too far um, I, I think there's things some there's some ways in which you could map um, the various uh, good and bad roles of Old Testament prophets, um, the court prophets, and the kind of the rebel outsiders, and the 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 various shapes in which that happens onto like the good and bad of the Force sensitive in the Star Wars universe, and you know kind of. The, the the Jedi Council versus the Sith and all of this kind of I, I think there's I think you could go too far um and you're probably right. outside of the realm of Last Jedi but it's an interesting it's an interesting entrance move it is and I think because um because I think the last the last couple of Star Wars movies have conditioned us to think that the Force is some hereditary lineage right right that. Like that, everyone has to be a Skywalker in order to be a Jedi, right? And I mean, the original trilogy is super aristocratic in that way. And, yes. And what is fun about both Ray and then, of course, like anonymous Cantobite broom boy, swap, br- broom guy, <laughs> broom kid, um, is that they're like they're not Skywalkers, and the Force moves where it will, right? Yeah, and that's and I like that. I yeah. love. I was happy when they. Uh, when Johnson made the move of of revealing Ray's true parentage as being uh, a couple of drunk deadbeats right. who abandoned her on a forgotten planet somewhere. And and I liked it in part because it, it democratized the force again in a way that was, I think, valuable for the myth, the mythology in order for it to survive. I don't understand how this... And, and I know that prior to this, the, the movie... There was a lot. Of, there was a lot of speculation about, you know, was she a Kenobi or was she a, right. a Skywalker or even a Palpatine or something right. like that? Because we know that, three families, so we just kind of circulate between yeah, naming ex- them. Exactly right. right? And and I think right, Johnson rightly was like, no, she's none of those things because she doesn't have to be any of those things because there are people who who rise up, and this is, I think, important in Mark because. At the end of Mark, there's this deep astonishment by the people of like, wait, who the hell is this? Who is this guy? Right. We don't know him. Right. And we don't we don't know where he comes from. Right. And he shows up and just starts exercising demons. Right. Um, how can how can that be? And I think that that's that's an important lesson for us all to learn about how God chooses people for for roles in, in God's world. And, uh, and for so many, like, oper- um, like ability is ubiquitous, right? It's democratized. It's, it's out there. And it's found in every community. But opportunity is not. Opportunity 
happens is is not given to everybody. And we forget that. And we think opportunity is available to everybody. Um, when actually ability is, it just we need to provide better opportunity to people. And I think Star Wars is beginning to like mess around with those ideas a little bit more in a way that's exciting to me. Um, it also made me think, I mean, last week's lectionary or two weeks ago was uh, Eli and Samuel in the temple. Right. Sure. And and similarly in that story, like Eli's own progeny are terrible priests. <laughs> They're they basically derailed the priesthood and he wanted to hand down this lineage of, of temple priests to his kids, but they basically ruined it. And so now he's there at the end of his life and you get the sense that like he's, he's sleeping closer and closer to the ark because he hasn't heard God's voice in a very long time. And then this kid keeps coming to him and saying, I, did you keep calling me? And finally, Sam or Eli realizes, like, oh, God's talking to this kid. In an act of what I think is like tremendous humility, and and really the the last sacrifice of a great teacher, he says, "All right, when the voice calls you again." Say you're listening and talk to it. And he instructs Samuel on how to actually talk to God. And for me, there's so much pathos in that story because it's, it's Eli perhaps only hearing the voice of God for the last time mm -hmm. through the ears of Samuel mm -hmm. and realizing that, yeah, this I wanted this to go through my children and it didn't. And God chose this out of the way kid who was like dropped at my doorstep by the crazy muttering woman who I thought was drunk. Right. Um, and there's something I think super powerful about that, at least to me, both in the, the way that God chooses, but also in the way that God instructs teachers. And this and The Last Jedi is all about teachers, right? There are lots of teachers in this movie and how they deal with being a teacher and failing as a teacher and then maybe succeeding as a teacher, too. All right, so let's go to our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. Matt, this doesn't have to be about Star Wars. So go ahead, let her rip. What's your postlude for the week? Uh, I, wanna talk, I don't want to talk about Star Wars anymore, um, although I could. <laughs> uh, See, you have 40 minutes on Star Wars. I, told <laughs> uh, I want to talk about the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which uh, is uh, Amy Sherman Palladino's new Amazon show that just won the Golden Globe for, I think, Best Comedy. And, and uh, Rachel Brosnahan from um, House of Cards just won for the leading actress in a comic role. Uh, I, I, I love this show for all yeah, of its good. faults. And I, and I just want to check in on it for a hot, for a hot second. Uh, uh, Amy Sherman Palladino is the the most best known for for uh, Gilmore Girls, uh, she, and she does a few things really well. She does whip smart, sarcastic, talky women, and she does like complicated, if occasionally ingratiating mother daughter relationships. 
And she does this kind of fascination with class and lifestyles of the comfortably rich, or from my perspective, kind of uncomfortably rich. Yeah, right. Uh, and sometimes this stuff works and sometimes it doesn't. But honestly, I think it works better here in Mrs. Maisel than it ever did in Gilmore Girls. Like, mm. Stars Hollow always felt a little bit like an artificial place, I think because it was so trying to be set in a contemporary moment. And there's something about Mrs. Maisel that dates itself in mid-century Manhattan in the kind of Upper West Side, very, very Jewish enclaves, um, where, where this kind of, where the class issues and the um, and 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 some of those kind of family relationship issues feel really naturally housed, uh, and I I think it works really well. The Midge Maisel is a young Jewish wife in mid-century Manhattan. Her husband her husband leaves her, and then she discovers that she has a surprising breakout talent for stand-up comedy, and so she tries to build a career as. Uh, as this young ingenue um, in a time before stand-up has really come into its own and certainly before there was a, stand- a pathway to stand-up comedy fame for a, um, a, a young Jewish woman. Uh, what most fascinates me about this, and there's, there's problems representationally throughout this show, there's some tone problems at times, but what I'm really fascinated with is the intersection of stand-up and preaching. <laughs> Uh, and Mitch Maisel is on a very bumpy learning curve about what it means to have this kind of raw, authentic power on stage, but also kind of hone it into something that is portable and repeatable and like marketable and sustainable. And I think there's something compelling about in that learning about the task of being a weekly preacher, <laughs> which isn't just about kind of having authentic power or about being able to get up and just rip it's also about discipline so her learning isn't just about jokes it's about discipline and i think this show in a way is a show about her learning a discipline and i in that sense i'm i'm in both kind of personally and professionally so that's my riff on mrs mazel have you watched it yeah i have i've watched three or four episodes right now um i i really like it uh i and rachel brosnahan's great in it she's really good um, and it does that that intersection of of power, energy, and discipline really well, and and shows you like this is how you sustain a life doing this. Right. It's um like the raw power will burn out. You'll just be the comet that just like right. sails through the sky. And there are enough com- comedians in the history of comedy that that you see like that who yeah. who just can't sustain it in like either burn out themselves and just OD and die or like flame out and don't have anything else to say. Like they've lost their, their act. But similarly, like the discipline, I, I, I was, I'm so interested by the fact that like early her husband who likes stand up is stealing all of Bob Newhart's jokes. Right? right. Thinking that like, if you're just disciplined and telling the jokes, people will want to listen to you. Right. Like right. if they're not your jokes, like, you can do this bloodless comedy and supposedly that's the thing that's going to help you succeed. And she's able, she's trying to marshal both. And to the extent that preachers can do so as well, I think, you know, that's ideal. Yeah. What about Uh, you, Adam? What's going on in your head? So I'm going to talk about my three favorite movies of 2017. Um, Okay. 
I haven't seen all of the movies of 2017. No. I have, I'm a father of two young children, and uh, and as much as I'd like to get to the movie theaters, I I don't. Um, so there are a lot of movies that I still want to see. A lot of stuff that's getting Oscar buzz that I'll probably see before the uh, the award show season is ending. Um, but here they are, in no order, and I like them for for different reasons, but they all share something that's interesting to me. Um, Lady Bird. Yeah, great movie. Get Out. Mm-hmm. And Logan. Mm-hmm. Did you see Logan? I did. I loved Logan. I thought it was great. Um, so here's what was intriguing to me about all of these, which is they're all dealing with some, I think, important ideas deeply entrenched in some genre constraint. Right. Logan is... is actually combining two genres. And so is Lady Bird for that matter. Um, Logan is a Western and a superhero movie. Yeah. And like and a road movie. In a road movie. It's like, yeah. it's, it's, it's taking these constraints and then it's trying to deal with some real important things about aging, uh, about dying. Yeah. Um, about history and, um, uh, and parents, and um, and it's taking on fodder that I, I think superheroes don't usually like don't usually talk about, or if it does, they do it in the most minimally shallow way that they right. can. Yeah. Um, Get Out is talking about you know race in America using the genre constraint of horror films, and and does it with just surprising acuity yeah. and its ability to say things about this country. V- via this indirect route of the genre is is wild. And similarly, Lady Bird is um it's a high school film, but it's also a sort of mother-daughter um coming of age film. Uh and it's saying something about growing up, but it's um in many ways a love letter to Sacramento of all places. Right. Um and about how places themselves um create us. Yeah inform us in ways that we didn't even recognize at the time. And I think Greta Gerwig is, um, is dealing with some really, like really important and big themes that, that most high school coming of age films tend to ignore um, or use as background. And she's recognizing that that background is really the foreground. It's really the most important, interesting stuff about this. And, um, and so uh, I love that each of these is is taking the what would generally be conceived of as a sort of genre film and 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 twisting it in new ways to say say things and it just gives me so much optimism watching these movies. I left the theater of each of these so optimistic about storytelling mm-hmm. and and just its ability to refresh itself and its ability to like um to not let the genre constraints ultimately destroy it. And I wonder about this with preaching because there are times with my own preaching where I feel so, I, I feel formulaic and yeah. it's because I don't have much time and I don't, or like I need, you know, I wish I had more time to work on something or I just can't find, I can't find the oblique route or the genre itself just feels so stifling. And it was just a reminder to like go back to the genre like what does it do? What are it, where it's what are its strengths? What are its powers? 
and tap into them and recognize that like that some of the best art that I watched this year didn't try and destroy the genre. It used the genre. And that was that was powerful and important to me. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, I think Lady Bird is a little different just because it's not. It, it's so um, packaged as niche indie movie. <laughs> like, you know, th- so, so there's, there's a little bit less of a kind of Trojan horse element to Lady Bird. Where, like, I, I think Get Out and Logan both have a little bit of, like, we're making a big, commercially blockbuster-capable film that, like, surprise, has some really grapply stuff inside it. And I don't, I don't think... Lady Bird ever masqueraded as anything other than like art house indie, but I love it. Uh, <laughs> like I'm not, it's not, that's not yeah. to disparage. I think, but I, I think the, the, the kind of marketing push on those is different, but I agreed all the way through. And I, I think Lady Bird, I think is my favorite movie of the year so far, but there's a lot, there's a ton of stuff I haven't seen. Yeah. Likewise. I think it was too. It just, it just was doing something different and it had a different hand, even though it was about, you know, a high school girl. And considering we watched Juno, I watched Juno like three days after I saw Lady Bird. Uh, and so to, to watch those two together and yeah. see ways in which Lady Bird just felt so much, it felt way fresher. Yeah. It felt, <laughs> it felt like way more consequential uh-huh. in the end. Um, it, it, did, it wasn't as tidy, right. and it, but it had so much deeper resonance, and the power of it was was much uh, was much greater for yeah. me. Anyway, well, that about wraps it up for this episode. We are in the process of scheduling the spring season of Technicolor Jesus, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. But if you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes or come back to the show page to discuss how we got it all wrong. Particularly in the case of Star Wars, I'm pretty sure we got it all wrong, Adam. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter at the show page at technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Mostowski, our dude. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band Chim Chimini Chim Chim Chiru. Thanks, Adam. Bye, Matt.